Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It is the completion of Paul's opening paragraph in chapter 2 of his letter to the church at Ephesus. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, and by the power of your spirit, O Lord, that you would impress your truth upon our hearts, that we would not only know you better, but that we would be changed, conformed more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning we have one of the best known texts in the New Testament. That carries with itself a series of pitfalls. There's a pitfall for the minister who has to at least meet, if not exceed, all of your expectations on one of the Bible's best texts. But there's a pitfall for the listener as well. Because you see, the better we know a text, the more we assume we understand its meaning. And sometimes our ears are not as open to hear what God has to say for us from His Word. This is indeed one of the best known texts because it is dear to the heart of believers. Our reaction to this test says a lot about our heart. Because in this text, Paul tells us that God saves by grace through faith for His glory. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things about our salvation that Paul caps off here in his discussion in chapter 2. First, we see that Paul tells us we are saved by grace. Second, we see that Paul tells us we are saved through faith. And then third, we see that Paul tells us we are saved for good works. Grace, faith, and good works. Now this is the capstone of a very well-known paragraph in the book of Ephesians. Paul is concluding his thoughts on the doctrine of salvation. And there is no more important doctrine in the Bible than this. Because you see, if you get this wrong, it really doesn't matter what else you get right. There is much that is important in the teaching of the Bible. Teaching about worship, 
teaching about the sacraments, teaching about the church, teaching about our behavior in accordance with God's law. But none of that means anything if we do not understand the main truth of how sinners are reconciled to a holy God. Because everything else flows from that. Our gratitude and worship of God. Our ability to obey Him. Our love for one another truly. All of it flows from salvation. And so Paul has been speaking about this in clear and concise terms. He has told us about our need. Our problem, what is wrong. And he has also told us, we looked last week, at God's intervention in our lives. And now, Paul is about to say more clearly what he interjected that we looked at last week. You remember that in verse 5, as Paul is describing how we are made alive in Christ, it's as if he can't wait to get to verse 8. And in the middle of what he's saying, he says, Oh, oh, by the way, by grace you're saved. You see, Paul is so excited by this doctrine, he can't wait to get to it. And so now here, he's going to give us a bit of a fuller explanation, more than just an interjection. He says, by grace you have been saved. And he says it more clearly in two ways. He explains it to us negatively and positively. He says, first, negatively, by grace you've been saved. And that means it is not your own doing. It's not something that you have done, that you have come up with, that you have managed to do. You have to put that out of your mind. That's not what grace means. That's not what salvation means. And it's as if Paul anticipates us asking a question. Well, Paul, not even this little... No, let me tell you what it is. It is the gift of God. And so positively he tells us that it is from God. It is a gift of God to us. This doctrine of salvation helps to clear up our thinking, much muddled thinking in the world today. It tells us what salvation is not. This doctrine of salvation, first and foremost, rejects the idea that we are all right. This is the main theology in the world today. That we're basically okay, and we don't really need God to help us much. We're not in dire straits. And so, what's with all this talk of saving? You see, if we think about it, saving is a pretty extreme word. You know, God is not tinkering on the edges with us. When we talk about being saved, your mind might flash to images of drowning or being in a burning building with no escape. It's not something that happens on an average, ordinary Wednesday. It's something that happens in a time of extreme need. And that's what Paul is telling us. We need God. We need to be saved. You see, the common view is that we're really okay. The problem, if there is anything, is with other people. If other people weren't so messed up, my life would be easier. And I'd be much better. Or maybe we blanket society. If society were better, then my life would be calmer, friendlier, and more loving. It's all their fault. But you see, Paul holds a mirror up to us. And he says, no, it's not just others. 
It's not just society. It's you and it's me. We need saving. This doctrine of salvation also rejects the view that we contribute to our salvation. This is another common view today. Those who would acknowledge that we need help or need saving still want to have some part. You see, if we contribute to our salvation, that puts us in charge. You see, we are the ones who make the difference. We're the tipping point. It doesn't matter how much is God's work, 2% or 99%. We know we need to cast that final difference. Everyone loves this in terms of the way they interact with people who are fundraising. You like to be able to be the one who is the tipping point. You don't just want to donate to a fundraiser. You want to be the one to put them over the top, to give them victory. And that's the way often we view our own salvation. God will do his part, but it's what we need to do that's really important. What makes the difference is me. But of course, this is a deadly viewpoint. Because at the end of the day, it leaves me standing and saying, I'm saved because I'm better than you. Because I'm smarter than you. Because I'm harder working than you. Because I'm more obedient than you. I'm saved and you're not, not because of God, but because of who I am. So who should we praise? Who should we honor but ourselves? You see, Paul says there is no room for this kind of thinking. He says, it is not of us. There is no part that is from us. Not even the littlest bit. It is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. You see, oftentimes we want the cheers, the applause. There's another view that's rejected by this view of salvation. And that is the view that we only need to be sincere in what we do. You see, there are some of us that realize we're just not very good at doing things. We can't accomplish the things that we set out to do. And so if there's something we need to contribute, we realize we probably can't do it. But what we can do is give it the old college try. We can really try. And so we envision that God looks down and will substitute my sincerity for actual performance. As if God looks at us and says, well, at least they're trying. You know, at least... They're showing some interest, unlike other people. I think I can reward that. But Paul says again, there's nothing in us, no feelings, no thinkings, no actings that bring to us salvation. It is all of grace, Paul says. Now, there are some who want to have their grace and keep their works too. There are some who want to acknowledge the grace of God and salvation, but who want to take issue with Paul where he says, it is not the result of works in verse 9. They're happy to see verse 8, but they don't like verse 9. And so what they do, even some within the church, theologians throughout the years, is they say, it's God's grace that saves. But God gives his grace based on looking into the future to see what I will do. 
And God looks way into the future and he sees what I do and then he rewards it with his grace. And so somehow, even though I'm working and that's what's responsible, it's negated by the fact that God is some kind of cosmic fortune teller looking into the future, deciding who's good enough to give his grace. Now think about that. Grace is not given to those who are good. You remember we looked at that last week. Grace is not just unmerited favor, it is demerited favor. A doctrine that says that God gives his grace to those who are worthy of it doesn't understand what grace is. You see, Paul says that grace is not your own doing. And the language here is very clear and it shows that God is sovereign. The words, not of your own doing, actually are not out of me. It doesn't come out of me. It's nothing I provide. It's nothing that I give. There is no reward at all, just the gift that Paul understands. Do you understand the difference between a reward and a gift? You see, a reward is something that we are owed. Let me see if I can illustrate what a reward is in very American terms. A reward is something that you can sue someone for if they don't give it to you. You can take them to court. They owe it to you. They're falling down on the job. This is yours. I fixed your car. You owe me $500. I taught your child. You owe me $200. And if you don't give it to me, I will sue you and make someone make you give it to me. But the gift is completely different. It's undeserved. It's something that we receive that is not ours by right. We have no claim to it. And these two concepts cannot be combined. You see, either our salvation is a reward that God owes to us because of who we are and what we have done. Or our salvation is a free gift from God that we do not deserve. When Paul speaks about this in the book of Romans, he brings up the discussion in the context of the person of Abraham. Now, I ask you, if there is anyone in the Bible who could lay a claim to having said, I earned salvation, it would be Abraham, wouldn't it? God comes up to Abraham and says, follow me. Leave your whole family and friends and world behind. And Abraham follows. God says, do this in accordance with my promises. And Abraham does. God says to Abraham, sacrifice what is most dear to you. Your only beloved son. And Abraham is ready to obey. And yet when Paul speaks of Abraham's salvation. He reminds us that it came to Abraham not by his works, not by his actions, not by his sincerity, but by his faith. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, Paul says. 
You can't define the word out of existence. Just because you say grace, if you mean works, you have not understood grace. Now, why is our salvation by grace? Why does Paul assert this? First and foremost, it's because God saves people in need. You remember the beginning of this chapter. We are lost and we cannot find our way. We have been separated from God. We are under the penalty of sin. That is death. Ephesians 2.1 But most of all, we are falling into the hands of the just judge, the living God, and we have absolutely no defense for our sin. So what we need is God's grace. We need God not to give us what we deserve and what we have earned. We need His grace. You see, God saves people who are unable to save themselves. Paul makes this very clear. He uses this blanket statement, it is not of your doing. But there are reasons for this. We are dead in our sins, Paul says, so we're unable to see what is true. We are unable to choose what would bring salvation. And even above that, we don't want to change our ways, Paul says in verse 3. He says we enjoy the temptations of the flesh. Now you see, the problem for us is, as Americans, we see this as unfair and as hard. We want everyone to have an equal opportunity. We want to, to bless merit and hard work and people who pull themselves up from their bootstraps. We want people to carry their own weight. We don't like freeloaders, do we? And so we think the same way about salvation. But have you ever thought about your own limitations? Think about what you could do in trying to work your salvation. Let's just take one example. Most of us at one time or another have made a New Year's resolution. How long did that last for you? If you're like the average American, that resolution did not see February, did it? Let alone made it throughout the entire year. Now, imagine we're not just talking about your heartfelt commitment on January 1 to change your diet, or to read more, or to interact with your neighbors more. Imagine you had not just one resolution you were trying to keep, but thousands Tens of thousands. And you had to keep them not just into February, not just throughout the whole year, but through the entirety of your life, every moment of your life, in thought, word, and action. When you start to think about that, you say to yourself, I don't want to be saved on the basis of my actions. That's a sure loser. There's no way I'll find salvation. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that my salvation does not depend on me. It's not of my works. It's of grace. It's God's gift. Even a fool like me can stand with his hand out and take the gift. It comes from God. You see, this is why God saves by grace. And there is something else that Paul says that reminds us of who we are as sinners. He says in verse 9 that it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
You see, it's interesting how guided by the Holy Spirit, Paul sees right down into our hearts. He knows that if there was the smallest thing that we could say that we did that was responsible for our salvation, that would be all we would talk about all day long, all of the time. We would boast in our wisdom, or boast in our maturity, or boast in our compassion, or boast in our insight. You see, Paul knows this. And so he reminds us that salvation is of grace that no one may boast because salvation is to God's glory, not man's. There is an acronym that perhaps you've heard it before. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, it is what God has done that makes all the difference And this allows me to spread the good news of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is anyone can be saved. Because it's God that does the saving. No one is past God's grace. Not drug addicts. Not criminals. Not those who are bitter. No one is past God's grace. It is all up to God. The second thing that Paul tells us is that we are not only saved by grace, but we are saved through faith. Now, we need then to answer for ourselves the question, what is faith? What faith is, most simply, is believing. You see, faith works with God's grace. It is an instrument that God's grace comes to us through. Now, what faith is not is it is not subjective feelings. Faith is not your gut. Faith is not you thinking or feeling like you should have something happen. Faith is also not believing contrary to reality. It is not a wish upon a star. You see, sometimes that's the way that we think about faith. It's everything in the world tells us otherwise but we just believe otherwise, and somehow that will come to pass. You see, one of the ways that happens in my household is this. Maybe you have this. I'm, on a regular basis, having my children come up to me and tell me about the wonderful things they are going to win in contests. Cars, vacations, homes, trips, because there's a contest. And and they're going to win. And I just sort of shake my head because I know what reality says. The fine print says one winner in 486,000 million. Parentheses. You have a better chance of being eaten by a shark twice than winning this. Right? So faith is not like that. It's not just hoping against all reality and somehow when we wish upon a star, it comes true. Now, faith is also not optimism or positive thinking. This is sometimes brought out even in the church. There's a certain congregation down in toward the city where the pastor tells them all you need to do is think positively, think rightly, and God has to do things for you. But you see, that's not how life works or the Bible works. There was a similar kind of advice that was given out, not in a church, but in a leadership meeting this past week or two. 
You may recall that the leader, the speaker, told people if they just thought positively, they could run across hot coals and not be harmed. And of course, that evening, the ambulance came and 30 people went off to the hospital with burnt feet. Because just thinking positively doesn't make it so. What faith is, first and foremost, is knowledge. I must know something, and I must understand it. There is a content to my faith. Faith is not just a subjective feeling. It's not wishing upon a star. It is knowing a fact and placing my faith in it. Faith has an object, and biblical faith's object is Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, I must know things about Jesus to have biblical faith. I must know that He is the Son of God. I must know that He has come to live on earth and lived a perfect life. I must know that He died an atoning death on the cross. I must know that He rose again from the dead. You see, faith knows these facts and understands them. But second, faith is more than just mere knowledge. It is not just intellectual assent. I could tick those boxes off on a sheet of paper. Yes, I understand that. Yes, James tells us that the demons believe and tremble. You see, biblical faith is more than just knowing. It is also responding to that knowledge. It is that knowledge taking root in our heart. Some have crudely described it this way, that the difference between salvation and damnation is 12 inches. The distance from your head to your heart. I think Calvin puts it much better. Calvin says we are to pour into the heart what the mind has absorbed. You see, what we know should affect who we are. It should reach into our hearts and change us. But there is still a third aspect to biblical faith. And that is trust and commitment. We must know something. We must be sure of something. But we must also be willing to trust based on that knowledge and assurance. We rest upon the promises of Jesus We rest upon what God has said in His Word and we trust our lives, our very eternal lives, upon them. It's like this. There is a difference between looking at a bridge over a canyon and saying, that's a good bridge. That bridge will hold up. And then actually walking on the bridge and crossing it. The first is knowledge, assent, and even assent to the truth of it, that we believe it. The second is a trust that we place our lives in the hands of that knowledge and truth. And you see, that's what biblical faith is. It changes us. It's not just something we know. It's not just something we agree with. It's something we trust. Now, where does this kind of faith come from? After all, it can't come from us. Paul has just told us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we've looked at this the last few weeks, and we've agreed that dead men don't dance, they don't tell tales, they don't speak, they don't do anything. Why? Because they're dead. So dead men don't have faith. 
they don't think, they don't assent, and they don't trust. You see, faith is not something that we do. Because if faith was something we brought to God, that would be from us. It would be our own doing, wouldn't it? It would be a different kind of work, but it would be a work. Now, Paul has just told us twice in very clear language that it is not at all of our works. It is not of our doings. So my faith cannot be the thing that I do and bring to God. My faith cannot be the difference maker. You see, there's a subtle lie here as well. I'm better than you are because I responded better than you did. I was able to have faith and you weren't. But the reality of God's grace is is that it all is of God. Faith is a gift, Paul says in verse 8. He says... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, there is some controversy about what the it is. It would have helped us if Paul would have had a diagrammed sentence. But he doesn't. And there are two things the it could be referring to. The it could be referring to the noun closest to it, faith. Or it could be referring to the whole concept of salvation, which includes what? Faith. So in that sense, there's no difference. Now, I believe, along with Augustine and Charles Hodge, if you want me to drop some names on you, that the it here refers back to faith itself, that faith is the gift of God, because this is along the lines of what is elsewhere in the Scriptures. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but suffer. It has been granted. It has been gifted to you to believe. Now, we could spend the next 20 minutes, if you'd like, flipping through our Bibles, finding similar passages. But again, I don't think it makes much of a difference what you think the it is. It is either God's sovereign work of giving us faith, or God's sovereign work of giving us salvation that includes faith. But either way, faith is absolutely necessary. You see, this means there are no shortcuts. Because we are reformed, we don't say to someone, well, you might be elect, so you don't have to really express your faith in Christ. You don't really need to to do that. We could just understand that it's there. No, Paul says we must have faith. We are saved through faith. Faith is the empty hand that receives the grace of God. But we understand that the only way we can do that, the only way we can even receive, is because God has first given to us. It's a gift of God. This is what Jesus means in John chapter 3 when he says, you must be born again. You won't understand God's truth. You will not accept me as Savior. You will not understand your own sinfulness unless you have been born again. You will not know, you will not assent, and you will not trust unless God gives you the gift of faith. Now this brings us then to the third thing that Paul describes in our salvation. It brings us to verse 10 and that we are saved for good works. And it first describes to us the necessity of of good works. Now some have criticized the idea of salvation by grace 
alone, through faith alone. They say it leads to a life of sin. If you're saved by grace, then why should you do anything good? If God doesn't have something to hold over you, why would you possibly obey Him? There are some who said to Paul, well, if grace abounds in sin, let's sin even more so that grace can abound even more. And you know what Paul's answer is? In really loud Greek, no way! I don't even want to talk about that. And you see, the problem is, sometimes when we come to this text, we memorize and we read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we forget there's 10. You see, 10 is a part of the package. 10 is a part of our salvation. Because you see, Paul tells us we are saved by God and we are His worksmanship. We are His creation. This is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to refer to the creation. We are His recreation. And God has saved us not just to spare us from the penalty of death and hell. God has saved us to make us like His Son. Do you all remember the famous verse in Romans 8 in the chain, the golden chain? Verse 29 of Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, God has saved us so that we would be like Jesus. We are to love what Jesus loves. We are to do what Jesus does. That is the end goal of salvation. Now that may be hard for us to realize here as we're battered by temptations, as sin is all around us. But there will come a day when in glory, God will consummate salvation and by His grace, He will make us like Jesus. We will be unable to sin. Our meat will be to do the Father's will. And what Paul says is, get after it now. You see, good works are necessary to salvation. It is not that faith plus works equals salvation. It is that faith equals salvation plus works. Works are a necessary consequence of God's grace in salvation. Not a necessary requirement of salvation. And that difference is important. Because if we make works a necessary means to salvation, then we are able to boast that Paul is a liar. But what Paul is saying is good works are a necessary consequence of our salvation. And so, you see, we have no merit from these works. God has given us the ability. He has created us. We are His recreation, His worksmanship. This is God's plan for us. He's prepared all these works beforehand. You see, when we understand what works are, it makes sense. A living heart does what? It beats. That's how you know it's alive. A living soul does what? It works. That's how you know it's alive. It is evidence of God's work. 
And you see, we have been created for good works by God. God's plan for us is to prepare for us works in advance that we would walk in them, that our lives would be marked by them. Now, I am not suggesting that you go home and somehow try to ascertain what works God has given to you and make a list of them. But what I can say is, if you are able by God's grace to do good works because God has changed you in Christ, then know that God has prepared those works for you from before the foundation of the world. That God has changed you for a purpose. God's gracious work is to save a people by grace alone, through faith alone, for His glory alone. And in all we do, we are to glorify God. We are to give Him the praise and salvation. We are to live in a way so as to praise Him. And we are to tell others that they can have this life also. No matter who they are or what they've done. Because it all depends on God. It is His grace that brings us to Himself. It is His grace that changes us in Christ. Praise be to the Lord our God for His sovereign, saving grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You, through Your servant Paul, have stripped away from us any boasting that we might have that we might boast only in the cross, that we might look only to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would give Him all praise, glory, and honor for what He has done, for He alone is worthy. Lord, our salvation is all of Your work. But in our gratitude, in our thanksgiving, we ask by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would equip us to Walk in the works that you have prepared beforehand for us. That in a response of gratitude, we would long to be like Jesus. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.